Wagwan, everybody. Welcome to the Dis Afemi History Podcast, where we'll be speaking about history and as well family history and how history relates in terms of Caribbean people um, for the present as well as in the past and how in the past what that does and brings forth for what we are going through at present and what we can learn from our history, from our family, and take that moving forward. So I do hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you like it, please ensure to subscribe, like, and review. Thank you. And to speak about your book, Karate Karate, A Global History of Caribbean Foods. And uh, I'll let you just to introduce yourself to the listeners. Well, um, my name is Candace Goucher. I'm a historian by training, I'm also an archaeologist. Uh, I started uh, as an Africanist working in West and Central Africa. Um, and only in my 30s did I have an opportunity to travel to the Caribbean. Oh, wow. Amazing. Great. Yeah. Thank you. So, and as I said before we had started, I really, you know, I really enjoyed your book and, and I liked how, you know, everything flowed uh, with that. And I just wanted to know what motivated you to explore the history of the Caribbean cuisine in such a detailed manner? Well, it's, it's a bit of a long story, but um, it really begins in Africa um, uh, because I came late to the Caribbean uh, with a lot of Africa experience, uh, I found myself constantly seeing uh, colors and foods and people that reminded me of West and Central Africa. Um, and specifically, um, you know, I was struck by these similarities. The words for certain foods were identical on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so I started, you know, recording my observations and I began to um, take notes and eat mm -hmm. my way through the Caribbean <laughs> yeah. um, and, and discovered as I began to research uh, the topic that almost no one had written about the history of food. Um, and those who had um, really contained their thoughts and their research in cookbooks. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very interesting that um, food studies was very separate from, you know, the work of historians. So that started me down a path that I became determined to uh, <laughs> discover uh, the connections between Africa and the Caribbean. Wonderful. And it sounds like a great uh, path to go down as well, to be able to taste all those different foods and you know, your book title, um, Congote, Congote, has different meanings across the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to explain the meaning as to why you use that in the title of your book and how it reflects the, the themes in the history of your book? Yeah, um, that's a really powerful observation. Um, I think Congote does have um, a number of meanings. Mm -hmm. Um, and historians, of course, have identified um, the movement, the earliest movement of peoples and their cultures um, from areas of the Congo into the Caribbean. Um, beginning in the 16th century, you have key Congo words um, uh, from uh, being spoken on both mm -hmm. sides of the Atlantic. Um, but a... a 
J.D. Elder, um, mm -hmm. Jacob Elder is a um, uh, anthropologist trained as a sociologist as well. Um, and he was born on the island of Tobago uh, in 1914, I think. And he began to record many of the children's songs that he had learned um, as a child um, and and other aspects of local culture, um, music and storytelling, um, games, children's games. And one of those games was called Congote Congote. And he writes about that um, uh, game, uh, which was kind of a mother hen and baby chicks chase and mm -hmm. you know, uh, capture game. Um, so there's a reference to, um, to that. Um, and congote also is a word um, that's used for uh, porridge that's made out of cassava. Um, cassava what, uh, is what um, old timers would call a holding food. <laughs> it's, it's a food that really um, strengthens you and holds, um, holds back the hunger for much of the day. Um, and of course, cassava is um, a food that is local. It's indigenous to the Americas. Um, likely, uh, it was domesticated first in Brazil, in the in the rainforest of Brazil, some ten thousand years ago. So it's very um, it's a very important crop because it's also drought tolerant. Um, but it has another quality, and um, some varieties of cassava contain a particularly large amount of poisonous toxins. And so they need to be boiled off and it sometimes then becomes something known as casarup, which is a syrupy um, food for used for stewing meats of various kinds. Um, pepper pot, for example, mm -hmm. is from casarup. Um, and then Congote Congote is also a reference to a proverb in some places, meaning um, one day, one day Congote. Um, in other words, one day, you know, the um, justice will prevail. One day we will be free. Um, so it's a very powerful way to express, I think, a very nuanced way of looking at the world um, and acceptance of what is now. Uh, reality won't always be mm -hmm. that way. Change is inevitable. Um, and then finally, um, Kangote also refers to foods that are particular to religious observances, ceremonies. Um, so uh, as a gesture to African ancestors, um, Kangote is ritual food. So the title essentially, Kangote Kangote, reflects all of these different layers of complexity and multiple meanings that are found um, in Caribbean history. And, and in a sense, there you have the themes of the book as well, that how food expressed and maintained an African identity, um, African values and cultural elements, even while borrowing from other peoples and places, um, it is the story of the African diaspora, um, adaptation, resistance, survival that is passed on 
um, from one generation to the next, from children, from mothers to children, as the children's game suggests. Um, it's one generation to the next at the dinner table and in religious uh, rituals that are um, have been and continue to be empowering to um, individuals and communities across the region. So I think it, it reflects that kind of bewildering complexity that is really what the Caribbean is all about. Yes, definitely very multifaceted for sure. And so with the you know Caribbean cuisine, it's known for its vibrant flavors and diverse cult cultural influences. How does your book trace these origins and evolutions of these influences that have that have shaped the Caribbean for what it is today? Um, well, the, the the book I think um, is organized chronologically, um, and uh, so it starts in um, the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, it and the Caribbean Sea. Um, I begin with maritime foods in the first chapter um, that were common to everyone who traveled to the Caribbean, whether they were enslavers or enslaved. Um, they had in common a particular diet that was a maritime diet and that salted everything, salted mm -hmm. cod, salt pork, um, sea biscuits that were twice baked, very hard um, uh, wheat flour biscuits. Um, so the experience of being enslaved, the experience of being an enslaver, of living inside of a slave society um, uh, comes next, where Africans were commodities shipped um, into the region, but where they were in large numbers uh, able to shape the cuisine mm -hmm. of, the, of the region. So I moved through um, major aspects of Caribbean history um, through the themes of um, those foods. So the maritime, uh, the African provisions, uh, the commonalities of, sh of sugar production and sugar islands and how important sugar was. Um, we can learn a lot about, I think, creolization, adaptation, transformation in history. This essentially is the story of globalization. And the Caribbean was the first place where globalization happened. Definitely. And, you know, with Caribbean food, as you mentioned, you know, it's characterized by the infusion of African, Indigenous, European, and Asian culinary traditions. How does the book, you know, delve further into this fusion and the resulting of the unique flavors that are characterized just by the Caribbean food? Well, one thing I should mention is that the book includes a lot of recipes. Yes. And so um, it really centers on the food, on recipes for the food, um, and it uses those specific recipes to delve more deeply into um, the experience of um, cultures and histories um, becoming, you know, intermingled uh, and blended together. Um, an example of this is pepper pot. Um, yeah. So it starts, you know, as an example of mixing cultures, it starts with Indo-Guyanese and African-Guyanese peoples um, taking indigenous foods, uh, cassava, iguana. Mm -hmm. um, it, the iguana is interestingly adapted, um, by, taken over by Catholics um, who come in as immigrants um, 
it's it's a, as an aquatic creature it gets defined by the vatican as um fish um we know that of course iguana is not a fish <laughs> but it yeah. was um viewed as being you know jumping into the water and jumping out of the water and and so on so it was permissible on days of fasting korean roti similarly um the one needs to think about the history of um, both, uh, as one historian put it, conquerors and the conquered. Um, in that story, the curry becomes the Englishman's um, imperialist uh, beloved flavor, and it connects the experience of immigrants in South Asia with the Caribbean, um, which translates to the movement of peoples, not just um, uh, South Asians, not just Africans, but also British officers and um, immigrants. It ends up being synonymous with African and East Indian tastes in parts of, of the Caribbean. So pepper pot begins as this indigenous um, food, moves to African tables, then it ends up as street food in Philadelphia. So, yeah. so you can you can watch the both the development and evolution of uh, specific dishes and recipes um, and their spread, their diffusion over um, time and space. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you touched upon that, you know, with colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. you know, it played a very significant part in shaping the Caribbean. How does your book, you know, address the impact of these historical events on the culinary practices? of the food culture in the Caribbean. Yeah, well, I think I think food, this is what makes food history so important um, is that it is a way that individuals experience the larger global forces that are um, present uh, in, in our lives. Um, so foods can cross national boundaries, social boundaries, gender boundaries, uh, cultural ones. Um, and I think foods have the potential to both unite and divide, that is, um, express those commonalities that everyone agrees on and becomes the basis for uh, unique cultural creolization, if you will. Um, but it, the patterns of interaction are unique to every island, despite the fact that the ingredients um, may be common, they find different expressions. So. So I think it's a way of navigating this um, complexity of what we call history, um, big global forces and the most intimate thing you can imagine, um, you know, eating yes. and consuming food, putting food into your mouth, into your body. So it happens, it's history on an individual basis. And, and going with that theme, because, you know, these culinary traditions often play a role in preserving cultural identity. And so, again, the book, you know, how does it delve into that relationship between Caribbean food and the, pres the preservation of Caribbean cultural heritage? Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot, um, there's a lot of written evidence, right, um, for food history. Um, and... More recently, historians have um, initiated a practice they call they like to call 
reading against the grain. <laughs> so looking at this historical evidence um, from a perspective that might be critical, that might look for what is missing, um, what is being obscured, um, what is being distorted or stereotyped. Um, so there's a lot of written evidence for food. Um, for example, the maritime laws that dictated what would be fed to um, voyagers uh, on ships in the Atlantic Ocean. And those diets uh, differed whether you were um, an African being transported or uh, an East Indian coming from the Indian Ocean area. Um, it was it, the laws themselves uh, created a kind of singularity of identity. You were African, you were East Indian, um, where that commonality really didn't exist. Um, so uh, if, we, if we look more closely, um, the diets as they were prescribed don't pan out. Um, first of all, uh, slave enslavers uh, were um, being told by the governments uh, what they should provide in the way of provisions to slave communities. Um, but if we look more closely, we can see that those diets were insufficient. And so this meant that the enslaved, the indentured were forced to create their own foodways. And um, so reading against the grain tells you a different story. Archaeology tells you a different story. Um, uh, people were not cooking inside of their own houses. They were following the African practice of cooking outside in courtyard areas, in shared uh, spaces. Uh, so we see that, in, in fact, um, Africans were creating their own foodways. They were hunting and gathering and foraging and growing their own food. Um, and they were so, ex so so very successful that in times of crisis, hurricanes or famines, um, they were able to save their own lives and the lives of their enslavers. So we see the persistence, this amazing persistence of African values and African foodways um, in spite of the experiences that they were living through. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, in the process of you researching and writing this book, you know, what were some of the more surprising or enlightening discoveries you made about the history and evolution of Caribbean foods? Well, it's interesting. I, I think we, we tend to think of food as having two characteristics, the, the taste and smell. But in fact, what became so obvious is that food is so much more complex um, in many cultures, um, but in particular, uh, in the Caribbean, um, uh, foods have textures, they have names that can be proverbs or um, complex references, they have colors. Um, and, and so you have preserved in foods, um, essentially secrets that, that women hold um, that are Acquired gradually by men and women, by children, eventually in the course of their lifetime, as they become culinary experts, they learn the language of food. So certain 
foods, that, that um, symbolism is very complex uh, in African religions that have been carried across the Atlantic to the Caribbean. You have um, deities who had their own preferences. So rituals that where certain deities liked sugar or liked um, certain colors um, of food uh, and the chefs who are attached to those religions. And there were specialists who cooked for the deities um, the ways of cutting up an okra, uh, the use of salt or the, you know, uh, avoidance of salt, um, the viscous characteristic of certain foods, the color of a dish, all of those speak to people. And I think um, what becomes so interesting and, and obvious, and uh, if you think long enough about it, food itself has great agency. Food can make things happen. Um, and uh, I think food becomes a character in, in history if, if you taste it and listen to it and see it and, and um, pay attention to it. No, definitely. And for that to carry over from, you know, that time frame period, you know, the backdrop, it just shows, as you said, the power of food. Um, in terms of that being carried from one generation to the next. And you know, mm. for today's day, even to say what's being eaten in the Caribbean is then eaten very similarly onto the continent of, of Africa as well, which is, it, it, it definitely makes you think outside of the box type of thing, right? So, because the other thing is in your book, you, you made the point of telling the whole story from original people and defining Creoles. Why was this important to stress and to illustrate this link in the story of food? Well, I think we know that there were systemic transfers of food and language and culture. Um, we maybe take it for granted. Yeah. Um, and I think that's partly because food was a, a domain of women. Um, and women's contributions um, have been overlooked, but I think food is just as important. And what happened at the table in terms of cultural transfer was just as important um, as what happened inside of economies or governments um, and other places where women traditionally were excluded. Um, so you have, I think, specifically in the Caribbean, um, cuisines becoming the original language of encounters, the original language of ideas about sustainability and global identity. Um, you know, so many lessons to be learned from, um, from the story of food. And, and I think food history allows us to taste the past, literally, um, yeah. In all of its complexities, um, we kind of take for granted, right, that um, globalization is everywhere around us. But in fact, um, uh, it's in the Caribbean that you have the initial experience of that process. And that process was um, sometimes a process of creolization, of creating something new. So the, the term really began 
as a way to describe someone who was born in the Caribbean, not necessarily white or black mm -hmm. or of African descent or not, but someone born there locally. And so there was a recognition, I think, that that the Caribbean created opportunities for people to become something new and different and um, something that was created out of this unique encounter between indigenous, African, Asian, European um, cultures. So um, it's historic. Yeah. Definitely. And still continuing with this theme of defining the Creole people, specifically um, individuals of African descent, what were the systemic transfers of food and connection to their language, you know, and traditions? Mm -hmm. I think the ability to name something is, is very empowering. And so we see um, words like okra. That's, that's comes from an African language. Um, so, so I think naming, um, an ingredient, um, being able to bring seeds, um, and grow locally plants that were important in your original homeland, um, that was also very important. Um, that's, a gift from the ancestors. That's a recognition of this continuity of, of um, past into the present. So um, I think, you know, we have here um, the survival of African values, mm -hmm. of African pride and cultures against all odds. And there's a, there's a lesson in there um, I think, you know, historians have spent way too much time focused on the enslavers um, and not enough time on the day-to-day -day experiences that everyone, you know, was partaking uh, in. And, and it's that day-to-day -day experience that enabled survival, that enabled resistance um, uh, of, of African peoples. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, definitely what you said in terms of the, you know, continuing of that um, connection with food and with language and of the, I guess you can say genealogy of mm. people still being, um, you know, surviving today. And, you know, I guess, you know, what impact do you hope that your book will have in promoting a deeper understanding and appreciation of Caribbean food? and its historical and cultural significance? Well, I mean, we we hope that people will um, be interested in history. That's not always the case. Yeah. <laughs> um, lots of reasons why we might um, turn our backs on, on history. Um, but I think um, as we become more and more globalized in our, in our lives, um, we maybe take for granted the fact that when I when I look at my plate, my dinner plate, or you look at your dinner plate, that that we have the world on our plate. Um, we have foods from every part of the globe, um, foods that have originated in one place and and been taken to another. Um, and I think 
I think, um, if nothing else, that an appreciation for the extent to which that globalized experience begins in the Caribbean. Um, that's our first um, global community. Um, we have a lot of lessons to learn from, from that experience of uh, survival and resistance and adaptation. Um, and I think uh, that the, both the commonality of the foods that we eat um, and also the distinctiveness, the distinct stories that, that those foods can tell. Um, hopefully that's, that's what people will get out of my book. Perfect, thank you. And then, you know, as we come to a close with this, you know, again, probably now it's the, the message that you'd like to have readers take away from the book and how you envision your book, you know, contributing to the ongoing appreciation of Caribbean cultural heritage. I think one of the um, interesting things that I'm beginning to see is how um, Caribbean tastes have traveled so far. Um, I, I live in Portland, Oregon, and we have an amazing Haitian restaurant, um, Gregory Gorday's uh, restaurant, Khan, um, serves up the most uh, amazing Haitian food. Um, so, so we can look at that story of Haiti, for example, as being a story of hunger and imperialism and oppression and violence, um, or we can look at it as being um, a story of resistance and, and persistence, um, keeping those flavors intact, uh, you know, is uh, a globalization miracle. Uh, when you think about the, the past that that particular island has experienced. Um, so I hope that food can remain an inspiration to people uh, to learn about the past um, and to encounter the lessons of what that past might tell us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And again, I appreciate your time. So um, we'll end here. But again, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and write a review for the episode wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you.